So I wasn't really aware of this until this week. Read an article in a wildlife, North Carolina wildlife magazine that I received that located just a few miles south of Wilmington on what is called as the Black River tributary there of uh, Cape Fear are some of the oldest trees in the world. Some of the oldest trees on the globe are down there in the swamp of the Black River. These bald cypress trees have been dated accurately through core drilling to 2,700 years old, but they know that there's trees down there that are much older than that. The core of them, however, is rotted out. Even though the tree is still alive and the tree is still flourishing, they can't get an accurate core drilling to decide exactly how old the tree is. But these trees, some of them over 3,000 years old, are a living connection to a past that, from our perspective, is just completely removed. But I just found it fascinating that this connection to the past, this living connection to the past, exists here in our state. And, And I didn't even realize that. As you pick up a copy of God's Word today and as we open the Scriptures, we have a living connection to a past. And it's important for us to be reminded of that. Because as we read stories in the Bible, as we read accounts in the Bible like we do in 1 Samuel 17, it's real easy for us to see them almost like fables, almost like fairy tales or children's stories And to lose the connection to the relevance of what that means to me today. It's easy for us to forget what the writer of Hebrews tells us. That the word of God is living. That it is active. That it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And that that two-edged sword is more effective than the one we'll read about today in 1 Samuel 17. To cut to the very core of our being, to the joints and marrow, the discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So this word is alive. And a verse that I'm going to use in our application at the end of the message is relevant for us to be reminded of here at the beginning. It comes from the book of Romans in chapter 15, where Paul says, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So this word that we read in 1 Samuel 17 today is given for our instruction, for our endurance, for our encouragement, and for our hope. So... Let's look at it together. We're going to wrap up what is a three-week series in this, this portion of this account of David's life that's familiar to us at, at, in, in many levels, but yet at some levels I don't think it is that familiar to us. And so we're going, to, we're going to finish this out today. And we've already begun. We spent the first week looking at, at the enemy, looking at this picture of a spiritual enemy that's depicted in a nine-and-a-half-foot giant. And then last week, we listened to and looked at the words of David specifically. And we're going to do that again today a little bit. But the words of David are the focus of this chapter. The focus is not a sling and a rock and a dead giant. That is not the primary focus of this passage. 
The focus of this passage is on the words that we hear coming from God's servant, from, from David, that recounts really all of the scriptural record that we have before us, that God's eternal plans and purposes will stand, that they are opposed by a spiritual enemy, and yet God overcomes. And he overcomes, as we have sung already today and heard JT talk about from the book of Colossians, in very unexpected ways. In ways we would never imagine happening. And he overcomes in such a way so that all the glory will go to him. And as David says, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, just like Hannah said, not with sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. We're going to read that as we hear David preach to Goliath. David preaches to Goliath. He preached to Saul. He preached to the Israelite army earlier. And we're going to hear him do that again today. So, let's look at the text. And I'm going to pick up the reading. Uh, let's see, where do we want to start? Um, verse 38. Okay, verse 38. David has recounted to Saul, up in verse 37... This idea, and I'm going to touch on it again today, that our memory plus our logic strengthens our faith. We looked at that last week. Well, David was exercising his memory. God has done this for me in the past. And if God can do that in the past, he can do that today. And that strengthens my faith for tomorrow. So in verse 37, he said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of the Philistines, or from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So let's pick up that reading then in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword, Saul's sword, over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he could not, he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? <laughs> and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drove near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So, as this account comes to a conclusion, as we read how this goes, just remember, it's important we keep this focus in our mind about what the the big picture here is. That there is an enemy that faces God and his people who is mighty and he is fierce. Israelites were right in some sense to respect him and fear him. But we also recognize that David prevails in an unexpected way because that's how God works. And God works in that way to that end so that he gets the glory for that. So that not only his enemies, but his people know who he is and what he does. So that, as Paul writes in Romans, we would be strengthened in our faith and in our encouragement and in our endurance and in our hope. So that's the account that we have before us here. Now, if you'll look at your sermon outline in in your notes there, and you can just follow along. I, I gave three simple kind of points there for us, and they're comparisons, if you will. So let's look at those for just a minute. First, the arrogance of the enemy, the arrogance of Goliath and his power versus what David comes onto the field carrying. There's a contrast there that is important for us to see. Now, remember, Goliath is not just a nine and a half foot giant. He is that. But he's clothed with a coat of mail that literally in the Hebrew is scales. He wore scales. So Goliath is a picture of. Of a spiritual enemy that is introduced to us all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. As the serpent, with his scales, comes into the garden and confronts Adam and Eve. So Goliath is not just an an, an enemy. He is a descendant of the enemy. Alright? Remember that. Remember in Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between your offspring, speaking to Mary, and the offspring of the serpent. Well, Goliath is an offspring of the serpent. And there is enmity between those two. Right? But God promised a snake crusher, a serpent crusher. 
And David is a picture of that, okay? So that's the enemy that we have before us here. It's not just this big giant, although he is that. And as the Philistine moves forward, and he's almost the focus of this in some ways. As you read that word, the Philistine, it's repeated like five times in these few verses. And it's like, okay, the writer's saying, well, he's used to having the center of attention. I'm going to give it to him for a minute here. Because it almost seems that way. The Philistine moved forward. The Philistine went. He looked. He cursed. He said. So the Philistine is the focus here, but not for long. Not for long. Notice what he says as he approaches David. He looks on David with physical eyes. I emphasize that because that's the whole point, really, of 1 Samuel in some ways, I think. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, when David is anointed... And Samuel is told, do not look at the outward appearance. That's not what God is looking at. And that's not what he wants his people looking at. He wants us looking with spiritual eyes, the eyes of our hearts. Because God sees the heart. He sees past that surface. David is being looked at by Goliath with physical eyes. And what Goliath saw is the same thing Saul saw. And it's not impressive. Okay? Goliath also looks at him as he carries physical weapons, and they are impressive. And David kind of recounts those. Remember earlier in the passage, it's a spear with a, with a handle the size of a weaver's beam, whatever that is. And I don't know what it is, but I know that the head of that spear weighs about 15 pounds. So it's a massive weapon. And he's having a, a man carry his shield into the field, a full-body shield, and he's, wearing, and he's carrying a sword, and he's carrying a lance on his back or some kind of javelin thing. So he's, he's approaching David with physical eyes, with physical weapons. And he's doing so by his physical gods. And I use that term because that's exactly what his gods are, right? They're formed by gold or silver or wood. And when the psalmist tells us in Psalm 115 that those who form those gods become like them, that's what Goliath does. Because Dagon, this Philistine god, is this merman that we saw earlier. This kind of part fish, part serpent, part man. And how did it work out with that particular god? Do you remember what happened with him? He ends up laying before the ark of God, before the power of God, headless, armless, and lifeless. If you're going to create your own god's people, make sure they can stand up or at least you can prop them up. Okay, those things that you trust in need to not rot. And so Goliath was trusting in these gods and cursing David by them. Hence, this is a spiritual battle. It's not just a battle against flesh and blood. And finally, Goliath is fighting for physical reward. Whoever wins gets the slaves. Whoever wins gets the land. Remember last week, Goliath and the Philistine army encroaching upon the promised land that God has already given the Israelites. And the Israelites, because of their faithlessness, have allowed them to come into the land. Saul, because of his ineptitude, is not serving as the king that they wanted. And so the Philistines are right back in the promised land. And that's what Saul, I mean, that's what, the, that's what they want. That's what Goliath wants, is physical rewards. He's seeing his enemy with physical eyes, carrying physical weapons, just cursing him by his physical idols and looking for physical prize. What about David? David gives us comparison here of the armaments. Look at what he says in 45. You come with your sword, with your spear. You come with your javelin, 
I come with a name. I come with a name. That's it. That's it. Not just any name. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. David says, I come to you. It's not here, but it's implied in this. David is remembering back over the history of God's people. I come back to you in the name of the God who is the I am, who said to Moses, I will go with you as you free my people from Egypt. He remembers that he is the God who met with them on Mount Sinai and all of his terror and all of his glory. He remembers that he is the God who says, I am the God who goes before you. I am the God who will conquer for you. He remembers David does what all of Israel and Saul have forgotten. What they've forgotten is that the Lord told Moses, I will fight on your behalf. Joshua told the children of Israel, don't be afraid of these kings and their kingdoms. God will fight on your behalf. Nehemiah told the children of Israel as they were facing the the onslaught of their enemies, don't be afraid, the Lord will fight on your behalf. This is the God that David goes into battle carrying his name. The name of the Lord of hosts, the God of heaven's armies. So he says, I come to you with a name. I come to you with a name, by the way, Philistine, that you have mocked. You have defied him. You have blasphemed him. And you have denigrated his people. And remember, David heard this. No one else did. They had heard it for 40 days, twice a day. And it didn't ruffle anybody's feathers until David stepped on the scene. Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is? Defying God and his army. You've mocked the Lord. Implied also, actually explicit, is because you have defied this God and God will not be mocked, you will be judged. And the judgment that David announces on him is the very thing that Goliath has threatened him with. Do you see that? David says, you will be judged. I will strike you down, cut off your head, and your dead bodies will be given to the host Of the air, the wild beast will feast on you. And why would he announce this? Why would he do this? What is his motivation and his intention? From the very beginning, from his speech to the Israelite army, from his speech to Saul, and now as he preaches to Goliath, he says that the Lord may be glorified, that all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And that this army behind me, who is inept and scared and frozen, can be reminded that they have a God who is able to overcome. The battle is his. And I'm not coming with sword or spear, Goliath, because that's not how God fights. That's not how he wins. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. I love what one commentator says about this particular speech. Actually, he says this about all of what David says. He calls this David's gospel. David's gospel. And here's the summary of that gospel. This gospel, he says, when proclaimed to Saul and to the Israelite army, is calling them to trust in the Lord and not be afraid of the nations. This call to the nations, to the Philistines and to Goliath, is to stop their foolish defiance of God. So it's a missionary message. People, be encouraged to be strengthened. 
Nations who do not know God and would defy him, turn to him lest you be judged. It's a gospel message, a missionary message. The enemy's arrogance and power versus David's God, his name, the Lord of hosts. Secondly, I've touched on it already. It's really brief. It's the enemy's threats and God's judgment. Saul threatens him. And he says, what is this you're doing? You know, you're coming out to me like, like I'm a dog. I'll touch on that again in just a second. But what David basically is saying, what you said you'll do to me, I'll do to you. God will do to you. And it's pretty graphic. You will be struck down. Your head will be crushed, serpent. I will cut off your head. There's significance, by the way, to that that we'll see developed all the way through. The ones who lose their heads in 1 Samuel are the enemies of God. It does include Goliath, and it will include Saul. Just a heads up, kind of a, so you know what's coming. I really didn't mean to do that. But it worked, so don't do that again, JT, okay? Don't. Maybe it's a heads down. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to strike you down, cut off your head, and feed your bodies to the animals and the birds. It's a judgment. It's an eternal judgment. God will not be mocked. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Just remember this. Remember the term for Goliath, the champion? First week we saw that. Remember what that word literally means? The man in between. So Goliath is the man in between in the first part of this account. David comes and stands in between in the middle and the end. All of this looking forward to the true champion that we read about here. In Revelation 19 verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now look at this next part. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, and he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with all their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds, birds gorged on their flesh. 
This is a preview in in 1 Samuel 17 of the judgment that comes upon the enemies of God in the end. Don't miss that. This is not about a slingshot and a rock and a little kid. Okay? That's not what we see in 1 Samuel 17. The enemy's threats and the Lord's judgment. Finally, we come to verses 48 and 49. I've thought about this for now several weeks. It's almost in one sense like the crucifixion accounts. Right? I mean, you have this amazing buildup as Jesus comes to the, to the, to the, the mountain of the cross, to the hill, to, to Golgotha. And, and, and the gospel writers just say, and there they crucified Christ. It's just one or two verses that give us a summary of the battle in which death is killed. Right? Well, here, out of 58 verses in 1 Samuel, there's really two that talk about the fight. That's it. Which, again, all of our children's books and all of our Bible story books and all of those things focus on what the text does not focus on. The text is on David's words, his faith, and on this picture of God's purposes and plans. But here's this account. The Philistine rose came out to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He put his hand in his bag, pulled out one of the stones he'd picked. He slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the battle was over. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell to his face on the ground. Do you see how it happened? It happened fast. This is a first-round knockout, right? I mean, it doesn't go long. And it's amazing to read some of the commentators. There's one secular leadership guru that writes about David and Goliath. And one of his points in his book that we learn from David Goliath, according to him, is that sometimes the very strength we think is a strength is indeed a weakness, a la Goliath. And the very weaknesses that we think are those are actually our strengths. Why is it, he says, this writer says, that, that Saul... Ask David why he comes with sticks. He didn't come with sticks. He came with his shepherd's staff. Well, it was because he had a pituitary gland that was malfunctioning. That's why he was nine and a half feet tall in the first place. And that pituitary gland misfunction causes our eyesight to be messed up also. It's very common for those who have this pituitary issue. And so he says, David was, I mean, Saul was just not a healthy man. And so he wasn't seeing the way he should. He wasn't, you know... What? Why do you come with me to me like I'm a dog? It was a short fight. That's how it happened. David, and by the way, David's descendants were known for their battle abilities with their sling. And this isn't, most commentators say, a little marble-sized rock. It could have been anywhere from two to three inches around. And in the hands of someone who knows how to use it can be thrown at least 100 miles an hour, some say 150. You ever watch Major League Baseball players try to get out of the way of a 100-mile fastball? This is why. It's deadly. But God's, God led that stone. God's the one who took it to its target, and it sank into his forehead. It's a short fight. That's how it happened. But the text also tells us how it did not happen. Verse 50, look at it again. David prevailed, but he did not do it with a sword. He did not do it 
with those weapons because he had no sword in his hand. And the text wants us to understand that. David prevailed in an unexpected way with God's amazing intervention and work on his behalf. And he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Now, I'm not really sure whether the rock killed Philistine, whether it killed Goliath. It says in verse 51 that David took Goliath's sword and killed him and cut off his head. I'm not sure whether the rock killed him or whether the sword killed him. I just know that when the head was cut off, it was a done deal. Right? Right? So, I mean, I'm good with either way. I'm good with either way. But how it did not happen was with the weapons of men. So I I tend to look toward the former. That it was the sling that did it. But I'm okay with either way. What's the result? Well, the the result is pretty clear as well. Those who were bold on one hand are now fearful, and those who were fearful are now bold. Their champion, it says in verse 41, is dead. Israel's champion stands on the field of battle there. He stands over the slain enemy. He holds his head in his hand. And that gives amazing bravery (laughs) to this Israelite army that in the past wouldn't come out of their tent. Oh, it's just cool to see that happen on one hand. So as we see this, instead of fear and retreating, the Israelite army routs the Philistines, okay? John Woodhouse, in his commentary, I love this. He says, they could have said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our anointed king, a la 1 Corinthians 15. But they didn't know that he was the anointed king. And they don't know the end of the story like we do, right? So they can't say that. They don't know that secret yet. But that's what they should have said. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that, right? And that makes all the difference. Now, the text ends with, in some ways, kind of an interesting, difficult little section here. And I call this the champion that day and the champion to come because it points forward even as it looks to the present. And in a sense, thinks toward the end too. David prevailed that day, right? We see that. The text tells us that. The account lays it out for us. Verse 50, David prevailed over the Philistine. David would continue to prevail. And this text is a foreshadowing of that, kind of a preview of that to come. So there's some difficulty if, if, if we were to... Try to figure some of this out, especially if you look at what it says there in verse 54. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and put his armor in his tent. Jerusalem is not the Israelite capital yet. Jerusalem will not be in their hands or be the capital until 2 Samuel chapter 5. So this is a preview. This is a picture of what is to come. This is a reminder, what one commentator says, is this is the beginning of David's destination. That destination will be Jerusalem. It's coming. And so in one sense, this is a preview of what is to come. Remember, in a narrative account in the Old Testament, and some of you have seen this already in the narrative account of John the Gospel writer. He's going to give you... Realities. He's going to give you historical events, but not necessarily in a historical sequence. They're going to come in a sequence that reinforces his point. 
They're going to come in a sequence that helps you understand the big picture of what's going on in that particular synopsis of what's being told, okay? Well, that's what the writer here of 1 Samuel does. He's giving us this picture of this, this big scene picture of what's going on and giving us accounts that tell us not only where it's going, but the confidence we can have in that. David conquered that day. He held the head in his hand. At some point in time in the future, and I don't know how, I asked Susan, did he put it in a big jar? You know, was it held in formaldehyde? I don't know. I just think that way sometimes. I don't know what, but it just says one day David was going to go to Jerusalem, to his capital, and keep that armor. We know later on David will get Goliath's sword. So it looks ahead. There's, this, there's just a reminder of what's coming. David will prevail and reign in the future. And sometimes this biblical narrative changes the sequence of things so we can see the grand narrative, all right? In verses 56 through 58, here's another point that is sometimes it, it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on. Saul said to, to, when Saul saw David do this, he said to Abner, Abner will be a central figure from now on for us. Abner, who is this boy? Well, according to some sequence, David has already been in Saul's presence, right? He's been there to play his harp and calm him when he is oppressed by the evil spirit that God sends. But this text is not asking who is David. The question is, who is David's family? I think that's an important distinction to be seen here. I think, I think Saul, well, one commentator says this. This scene indicates a remarkable blindness on Saul's part. He said, as David went out against Goliath, Saul could only see as a man sees. So he really had no idea who the youth was. His ignorance, the writer says, goes far deeper than his question. And that is true. Saul is spiritually blind. But in one sense, he's asking, why would he want to know who, the, who David's family is? Because he's made some promises that everybody has heard. The man who kills this enemy of ours, his family will be rewarded. His family will be free, meaning they will not have to serve and they will not have to pay taxes. So he needs to know who David's daddy is so his dad can be taken off the tax rolls. And I think that's part of the reason why he's asking this question in the way that he is. But Saul still doesn't understand or know And when he does find out, as we'll see in chapter 18, he will not like it. He will not like it. So there's a champion that day, and there's a champion to come. How do we apply this? How do we we take this account, and how does it really make a deep-seated spiritual fruit difference in our lives? Well, I remind you again what Paul said in chapter 15, verse 4 of Romans. The story of David and Goliath, the story of God being absolutely intent and laser focused on his own glory so that his enemies and his people would know that it is by him alone that he saves. The point of of that story for us is that we would be instructed, that we would have endurance, that we would be encouraged and that we would have hope. So how can this give us those four things? First. We can be instructed about the enemy that we face. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And we wrestle not against an enemy that will overcome in the end. He will crush the serpent's head. 
David cut off that serpent's head as a picture of the champion who would come. And through his death and resurrection would defeat death and bring life. So we can be encouraged as we realize the enemy that we face. He is defeated, but listen, church. He is, he is tough. He is fierce. I read this quote the first week from Woodhouse. All of us face an enemy, indeed an army of enemies, that is real and more powerful and more terrifying than Goliath. Death, number one, wields its terrible sword and it mocks us all. Number two, sin threatens to bring us down. And number three, Satan himself seeks whom he may devour. Death, sin, and Satan are real and we will face them all. But not as our own champion. Not on our own. And that gives us what we saw last week in, by way of instruction. That theocentric perspective that keeps God at the center of everything. It's important we remember that. Let me, give you, let me just give you an area where this is so relevant for us today. Okay? We just experienced Pride Month. Right? And our, and our, our, our first response to that should be, excuse me, our first response to that oftentimes as those who claim to follow Christ and claim to hold to his word and understand who we are as God's image bearers, our first response to that sometimes can be very visceral. It can be in a way very um, angry. But we need to be encouraged, excuse me, we need to be instructed, I think even from this, that our enemy... And the wiles of our enemy really gets down at the very core of our being for us to recognize who we are as God's image bearers. And that's where it all falls apart in that LGBTQ idea. That we are God's image bearers made in his image and our sexuality is a part of that. And with that theocentric view and that understanding of who we are as God's creatures, who we are as he redeems us in Christ... That understanding of who God is then is the basis of everything about how we respond wisely and boldly and compassionately to the issues that go on around us. I posted something this morning on our church Facebook page concerning a letter that was written by some some of our local pastors. Some of us put together a letter and it is being sent to the county commissioners. It's being sent to the county manager, county manager. It's being sent to the local public library. Because in our public library back in the month of June, a book was read to our children on a Thursday morning during children's story time. And the title of that book was The Rainbow Parade. And in it, the writer of that book wants to promote, normalize, celebrate the LGBTQ identity and behaviors and specifically targets children. And that was read in our public library. And we're writing to the county commissioners that that not happen again, that that be discontinued. Now, we as a church and we as the Christian community of this community need to know how to respond to that. And it is not viscerally and it is not angrily. We respond to it biblically, wisely and compassionately. And there's a lengthy letter that we wrote that's posted on our church face, on our church website that I plead with you to read. It's long, it's theologically deep, it is biblically robust, and it is the only way that we will deal with this and address it 
compassionately, lovingly, and biblically. You need to read it, read it carefully, and learn from it. There's a summary there as well. But the media will never teach us or model for us how to respond to this. Only God's Word will. All right? So that's kind of an aside, but we can be instructed by that because our champion has won. And it is Jesus who can restore and renew the image of God in every human being that draws a breath. Do we believe that, church? Do we believe that? Because that is the answer. That is the answer. Be instructed. Secondly, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because this word is given to us for our encouragement. Encouraged in this. That because our champion has won on this field of battle, nothing will ever separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what we're told. I love what Tim Keller said about this. Keep this verse in mind before I read Keller. Because what we have said, what we say really, I think I read this at every funeral I do. I know I read it at Ron's because I used this in Ron Phillips' celebration of life. Because as I read this at Ron's bedside, his eyes woke up and he perked up and he said, read it again. And so I read it twice. What I read twice was, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and make propitiation for the sins of his people. That's the basis of our encouragement. Tim Keller said this, Rather than living in the fear of death, we should see death as spiritual smelling salts. Salts that awaken us out of our false belief that we will live forever. When you're at a funeral, especially one for a friend or a loved one, listen to God speaking to you, telling you that everything in life is temporary except for his love. This is the reality. Everything in this life is going to be taken away from us except for one thing, God's love which will go into death with us and take us through death on the other side and into his arms. It's the one thing you cannot lose. Without God's love to embrace us, we will always be radically insecure, and we should be. We should be. You should be stone-cold fearful of death today if you've never trusted in Christ as your champion. As your Lord and Savior. And if you've trusted in Christ. You have nothing at all to fear. Nothing. Be encouraged. Be instructed. And be strengthened. I mean it's written for our endurance. This is where Saul and his army failed. Why did Saul and his army fail on that battlefield. Until David stepped on the scene. They were spiritually forgetful. They forgot. They forgot what God had done for them in the past. 
They forgot what he'd done for Moses. They forgot what he'd done for Joshua. They forgot what he had done for all the Israelite tribes. They forgot what he was doing. Later on, Nehemiah would remind the people of Israel, don't forget what God has done for you. It's your God who fights for you. And later on in the book of Hebrews, as we read, right before we read the part about the word of God being sharp and active, we read that the Israelites did not enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. Their unbelief was their forgetfulness. So in the midst of our battles and our trials and our difficulties and our bad diagnoses from the doctors and those deathbed watches where we wait hours upon hours upon hours, it's important that we preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of these truths from God's word. And our memory of God's faithfulness in the past, plus our logic that if God did that then, he can do that now, will strengthen our faith for today and for tomorrow. That's how it works. So 1 Samuel 17 strengthens us. It gives us endurance because we worship and serve the same God. And finally, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter writes us in chapter 1. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a what? A living hope. A living hope. The giant's head has been removed. The serpent's head has been crushed. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the basis of our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this account. We thank you for the instruction, for the encouragement, Lord, for the endurance and the hope that we have, not in David, but in David's greater son, not in the fact that Goliath died on that field, but in the fact, Lord, that you have killed death and you have freed us from the fear of death and you freed us from the bondage of slavery to sin and you freed us into the reality of the inheritance that is ours in Christ. And you've done that for us, Lord, not because of our strength or our ability, but by your amazing grace. And we thank you for Jesus, our champion, our conquering king, and our soon returning leader. Father, help us to live in the light of that hope today. Help us to live with compassion and boldness and endurance in this dark culture that we live in. And help us to live out and speak out the love and grace of Christ And to be quick to give the reason for that hope that we have in Jesus. Father, thank you that nothing is able to separate us from your love in Christ. Help us to walk in the freedom of that assurance. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that has never trusted in Jesus as their champion, as their king, as their redeemer. If they're still walking under the heavy burden of their sin and their guilt. Father, I pray that through the miracle of the gospel you would relieve them of that. Free them of that. Father, work in their heart by the power of your spirit to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus today. And to see that in the enemy there is nothing but lies and death, but in Jesus there is life. Abundant, full, and free. Father, we thank you for that and we praise you for that and we pray that in his name. Amen.